So um, we just finished with Moses uh, making the bronze serpent and the people uh, of Israel looking up to the bronze serpent in order to be healed. We talked about what then developed as a history for the nation of Israel and how it became a thing of idolatry. And then you turn to verse 10 of Numbers chapter 21. And it says, Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth. They journeyed from Oboth and camped in Aijah Abiram in the wilderness which is east of Moab toward the sunrise. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they moved and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness and extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wehab and Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. So a few things uh, to examine here, the first of which, you know, a list of encampments. Uh, years are being covered here as they move around. The Lord does this with them to uh, cleanse the camp. You know, you stay in the same site long enough and you're going to end up dealing uh, with unsanitary conditions. So the Lord does that periodically, moving them around. Uh, secondly, it's keeping them fit. You know, they, they, they are about to start entering into some pretty severe battles. And so being ready... Uh, to move, being, uh, you know, organized. And you know how it is. Uh, if you've moved at all, you tend to lose things in the process. And, uh, you know, then you realize, I didn't really need that. And uh, the Lord does that here with the camp of Israel. And there's a spiritual application there. The Lord does not want us to stagnate. He does not want us to find a church and settle in so deeply that we fall asleep. There has to be an activity. There has to be a heart that is fervent, that is desirous of work, that wants to be about building the kingdom. You know, it, it isn't the church, right? It's the condition of our own hearts. Because you go from one church to the next church to the next church, and you find out that you get bored everywhere you go. You really do have to... Uh, Pray that the Lord would fill you with his spirit and his mindset and that you would overcome that boredom and stagnation and find a usefulness to him. He's moving these people continuously, and that's part of the program, is, is that there would be a, a continuous refreshing in the process. Now, he mentions here the book of the wars, and a lot of people at that point uh, begin to criticize the scripture, the, the 66 books that we have written by 40 different authors, you know, over some 1,500 years. People want to say, well, you know, you also need to have Solomon's books of wisdom. And, you know, why don't you have, you know, any of the Maccabean wars, uh, you know, included this? And shouldn't we, you know, find out what these books are here? I mean, you know, these things are needed in the Scripture. And the truth of the matter is the Holy Spirit has built this book as he saw fit. The first century church literally stitched these 66 books together and said, this is what needs to be read by the church. 
Yeah, you get the opportunity to read some of those other books. By all means, do. Simply because they're mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean that they should be included in the Bible. Okay, you get to the book of Acts, and Paul is mentioning the writings of pagan poets. Should we include those in the Bible? Certainly not. We, we have a trust that what the Holy Spirit has said in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed, means these books here. What, what we need is contained in these books. The Lord is ministered to us. Maybe you were one of those people, or maybe you know one of those people who you talk to them about the Bible, and they go, yeah, I read the Bible. You know, any of us that have lived in the Bible know that this book continues to speak to us. I've, I've taught the book of Numbers here in this church. This is the fourth time that I've been through it in the 20 years we've been down here, nearly 20 years we've been down here. 20 years, how about that? So, you know, uh, um, I, I've taught from this passage and others a handful of times other than that. Last night as I sat down to really tear it apart one more time, and build my thought and my notes on it. I was astonished at what the Lord was saying to me out of these pages one more time. This book is living. <clears throat> if you're living. If you've surrendered your life to Christ. And you've become a child of God. This book comes alive. If you're dead spiritually. Without Christ. Haven't ever been born again. Then this is a letter written to someone else. And it feels very dry and bland and dead. When we approach it that way here, the Lord is speaking to his children about the necessity of being alive and moving in preparation for what lies ahead. Verse 16, and they and from there they went to Beer, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well. All of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank, meaning they dug it, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves, uh, literally their scepters and their staves. So they used, maybe even they're saying they used their authority to dig this well. And from the wilderness, they went to Matanea. From Matanea, they went to Nahalel. From Nahalel to Bamoth. From Bamoth in the valley that is in the country of Moab, to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. Now, if you want to take the time to develop an encyclopedic understanding of all of these locations, it does have a usefulness. But for the morning, this morning's study, it would be a drudgery in geography. So we're going to move on. In verse 21... Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, and this is really where we're getting at, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through the land. We will not turn aside into the fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Sound familiar? Right? He's done this once already with the king of Edom. And the king of Edom came out in military force, and Moses and the crew said, okay, never mind. And they took a long journey out around, and bad things happened. People complained, right? 
and snakes and bronze serpent and tragedy followed. You have to wonder if the Lord isn't showing us something here. They're about to engage in warfare. Had they engaged in warfare previously, you're kind of left wondering how that might have turned out. Might have been bad, might have been good. Point is, they learned some painful lessons in diverting out around. <clears throat> and now they're going to have to go straight into the battle. They're going to have to deal with this head on. Have, have you had that experience in life where you sort of shrank away and shrank away and subsequently you were spiritually defeated and you come to the point where you, you get sick of it and you have to just stand up and stand your ground and begin the fight. I, I you know, was freed from drug addiction and alcoholism, a lot of other things uh, by the Lord. And, uh, you know, there was a defeatism to my whole life. And there came a point where to gain freedom, yes, Christ delivered me, but I also had to grit my teeth, put on the armor, and pick up the sword. you got to wade into the battle. You know, otherwise, the battle's always going to take advantage of you. I think there's a really unfortunate approach, uh, particularly within Christianity, where people are waiting for God to sort of wave the magic wand over them. You know, <clears throat> yeah, I've got this problem in my life. Yes, I've got this sin that I know needs to go. Yes, <clears throat> I know I need to, but they just shrink away and shrink away. Waiting for the Lord to do his magic. Guess what? The Lord has done his magic. <laughs> He's given you his Holy Spirit. It dwells within you. It speaks to your heart. It strengthens you. But you do have to rise up. As the scripture says, you have to awake, O sleeper. And you have to engage in the fight. So, <clears throat> here they are facing this king, let me pass through the land. Verse 23, Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. He came to Jahaz and found, excuse me, and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from Ardon to Jabok, as far as the people of Ammon for for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. There's an implication in that statement that they might have even gone further and conquered more, but they met this barrier, and that's where they stopped. And, you know, spiritually, there's an application there of how, you know, certain things you're able to conquer in the very beginning, and then certain things have to be conquered later, you know. Sometimes, you know, there's great amount of victory and great amount of uh, overcoming. Other times, you know, incrementally things go. I you know, made the example many times as we read the New Testament and we see Jesus healing people. We see people that are instantaneously healed of everything they're suffering from. And then we have other examples where there's an incremental process. It seems odd, but, you know, Jesus heals the blind man, and at first all that he can see are what he describes as men that look like trees walking around. And then Jesus continues the process, and he receives 
the full restoration of his vision. I've talked to a handful of people who, when they came to the Lord, uh, they prayed a you know particular prayer and everything left. You know, anger and bitterness and foul language and drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and you know irresponsibility and laziness and just everything was gone. And man, don't those people annoy me <clears throat> because mine has been incremental. And most people that I talk to, their process with the Lord is incremental. There's a defeating of certain habits and practices that right in the beginning, thank goodness, you know, there goes the drugs and the alcohol, but those nagging cigarettes hang on for years sometimes, or, you know, whatever. It doesn't make the person any less the Christian. They're still surrendering their life to Christ, and there's still a process that's taking place. Uh, the the Lord here shows us that the nation of Israel is learning warfare. And they come to the border of Ammon, it's fortified, and that's as far as they go at the moment. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, and Heshbon, and all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all the land from his hand as far as Arnon. Therefore, those who speak in the Proverbs say, so this is the poetry and the songs that came later, come to Heshbon, let it be built, that the city of Sihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon, it consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of Arnon. Woe to you, Moab. You have perished, O people of Chemosh, for he has given his sons as fugitives, his daughters as captivity, to Sion, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon. Then he laid waste as far as Nopha, which reaches to Mediba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Moses sent to spy out uh, Jazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. So they conquer this entire territory, and it's such a complete victory that they write songs of poetry that are part of their history. And the nation of Israel knows it. You know, we sing songs here, and very often, you know, they come from very real, deep, potent circumstances, you know, that we might not understand. You know, we're so distant from them that we don't understand what someone was going through at those times. You know, the people that, you know, struggled with uh, very real physical afflictions, loss of family members, you know, crisis of faith. And the Lord brought them through those things and they wrote those poems and songs and we sing them today so impassioned. It's important that even if we don't research the history, we really take the time to slow down and think about what we're saying when we sing songs. To, to really, you know, ask ourselves, do I give it all? All to thee I do surrender. You know, to examine our own hearts and look at the history of what the Lord has done in the people of God amongst those that call themselves Christians and believers. It, it can be a very empty thing, can't it? 
You know, we come into this place and we know the words and we know the melody. And you just, it's almost like just sort of humming along. When, there, when there's no depth of heart, it, our, our heart gets very easily calloused. It really, it really does. You know, it doesn't take much for us to get shallow and to turn something into just a routine. It's a ritual, you know. We're not particularly moved by it, you know. We're not particularly bugged by it. We're just kind of stagnant again. The Lord wants us to have that consistency, that freshness. We've begun to study our way through the book of Revelation again on Sunday nights. And you get to the letters to the churches in the very first letter. It'd be good to know that you know the, the man who was writing the letter, John, was the pastor of the church that the first letter is written to. And he has to write down you know, the Lord beautiful compliments to the church at Ephesus. But then the statement, I, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And it isn't that it's the first in order incrementally, numerically. It's the most important. You've forsaken your most important love. And the thing that does that, now, now I've mentioned this a couple times in this, is the boredom, the stagnation. The repetition of the thing. Uh, one of the things that will free you of that is to get alone with the Lord, to to get away from everything. To you know, we we are so privileged here, right? I mean, you can drive down to the island, you know, from wherever you're at, you know, even on a Sunday, just twenty minute drive, park in Acadia National Park, and see, you know, something that's so amazing. The, the rest of the world covets what we have in our backyard. Take your Bible, you know, take your thermos of coffee, take your notebook and pen and just begin to inquire of the Lord and have him rekindle your heart. Just be, shut the cell phone off, you know, get away from, you know, Netflix or whatever thing you were going to binge on and just hear from the Lord. Uh, fasting can take many different forms. You know, fast from food, that's really important if we can do it. We should do it. But fasting from electronics is, uh, you know, that, that'll change this culture if we could just get people to shut it off for a day, right? Shut it off for a week. You know, hear from the Lord. Get alone with Him. You, know, you don't have to, you know, have some big conference and a hoorah event where everybody, you know, gets one another all wound up. You can just go to the Lord with the admission of, I'm dead. I'm dry. This is not right. You know, I've done the calculation in my heart and mind, and I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Please do something. Speak to me. Show me. You know, those of us that have had the opportunity to do that know <clears throat> there's a great change that comes. The Lord will answer. He's anxious, right? We think often of God uh, as, you know, the law enforcement officer. You know, the great eye in the sky that's constantly watching and looking for whom he might just drop a lightning bolt upon. The scripture says that he does constantly watch and look. But those of us that have come to know his character agree with what the scripture says. It says that his eyes go to and fro throughout the land, looking for those whose hearts are loyal toward him, that he might strongly support them. 
As far as God being that eye in the sky that's constantly looking, it's he's anxious to find one who's looking back up at him. That's that's wanting that relationship and desiring that person of our Lord. So in verse 33, it says, And they turned and went by way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at uh, uh, Edri. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons and all his people, until there were no survivors left him, and they took possession of his land. The Lord is teaching them warfare. They're learning this process. And in a way, <clears throat> you know, God is sort of having his victories in the process, but you really have to have this mindset, right? Uh, this is a group of people who were slaves and shepherds who left out of that slavery and shepherding, and they've become a group of nomads. And that's basically the entire summary of their culture and their personalities. It's just one big long camping trip. And now God is asking them to become warriors, an army. And uh, they're unskilled at that. So God gives them these opportunities to ready them for when they cross into the promised land, there's going to be huge battles and there's going to be even big defeats in the process. And they've got to learn what that's all about. God will do that. He's very gracious with us to bring us through the process and teach us the things we need to know. You know, some of us have been through those battles and we have a heart and mind to be engaged in the fight. When we talk about that with others of us, you know, there's a fearfulness and, and a desire to shrink away from that. God will bring you through what you need to in time and show you what's required of you. You know, those of us that are, you know, the homebodies shouldn't be critical of those who are ready to engage in the battle. And those of us that are ready to engage in the battle shouldn't be critical of those of us that are you know, more comfortable with the creature comforts of life. We're all the body of Christ, and, and the Lord is going to show us the things we need to do. And if you're inspired to get more involved in the battle, then there's plenty of battle available to all of us. 22 verse 1, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of Jordan across from Jericho. So sometimes it gets for confusing for people. Egypt being west, Israel being east, and now they talk east-west, and you're thinking like, they came straight in. They went out around and came across the Jordan into the land of Israel. So they're coming in from the east, traveling westward, crossing over. So then the children of Israel moved, camped in the plains of Moab, on the side of the Jordan, across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all Israel had done 
to the Amorites. The Moab was ex exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Now, I want to uh, just draw your mind forward. Uh, if you have <clears throat> studied your way through these passages, you know that once the nation of Israel finally crosses the Jordan River and goes into Jericho particularly, Rahab is a woman who works with two of the spies from Israel to help Israel be able to defeat uh, the, particularly Jericho. The Lord does the whole work there, and we'll, we'll get there, and it's really quite remarkable. But the point is that Rahab explains to them that from the time you as a nation, Israel, crossed the Red Sea, all of us here in the land of Canaan were petrified. We were scared out of our minds that you were going to come here and you were going to crush us and we were all going to either die or be your servants. What a tragedy that the 11-day journey, right, from the Red Sea to the Jordan River, walking on foot with all of those people, 11 days, they could have come to the Jordan River, crossed, and the Lord given all of those countries and people into their hands in victory. Instead, they've come to that border, doubted God's plan, spoken against him and the leadership that God put over them, and God said, fine, let's go for a walk. Forty years of wandering through the wilderness of sin, the wilderness of sin, until all of their flesh was dead. I don't hardly have to make any spiritual explanation there, do I? As we have to go through the process of dying to our flesh, crucifying our flesh, as Jesus said, if you've been half a lifetime seeing certain things defeated in your life, it's discouraging and encouraging. It's discouraging because the victory could have been yours in the very beginning. It's discouraging. It's encouraging in that God is patient with these people and he brings them to the place of victory. My encouragement to you this morning is, however long it's taken you, cross over. Let the Lord start giving you those victories. Here in this passage, there are still some things for the nation of Israel to go through. Moab and their people are sick to death with dread because of what's in front of them. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor. Now before I move on, there are a few chapters here where we're going to see uh, Balaam described. And uh, the things that he does. He is a very peculiar character in all of human history. Okay? He is a man 
who actually, I'll reveal to you in just a moment, lives in total rebellion to God. And yet, he's a prophet. He's capable of hearing perfectly accurately from God directly and then administering what he has heard from the Lord to whoever he might be speaking to. He hears from God and speaks for God and yet does not live for God. That that should be a very, very stern warning for all of us that people like this exist. Okay? When you read Psalm 1, David says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. You're going to receive counsel from anyone. The very first thing you want to do is look at their life spiritually. Forget their education. Chuck that right out the window. Forget even their life experiences or their age, young or old. Throw that right out the window. And look at, does this person live a godly life? If they're going to force their counsel upon you, just take it with a grain of salt. Just listen. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And move on. I just had a conversation with a young person who's about to embark on a really big prospect in their life. And someone very close to them is unbelievably well-versed in that subject matter and in those circumstances. But they're incredibly ungodly on every level. And their whole counsel to this young person was, don't do it. It's scary. Bad things will happen. This is not right. And from a worldly perspective, that would seem right. But I happen to know the other side of all of those circumstances. And they're being presented with an absolutely glorious opportunity from the Lord. And they're presently listening to the counsel of the ungodly because they have the education, they have the experience, they have the job in that field. And so therefore, you only listen to that guy because he's the expert. He's an ungodly expert on all those subjects. There's a godly counsel that is God clearing all of the obstacles out of the way and saying, we can do it. Walk forward with me. Let's go. You've got to learn how to find godly counsel. Godly counsel. And live your life out according to that. There's all kinds of people in this world. And they will lend you. What, what more do I have to say than look at the government? Right? All of our counselors. I'll, I'll say to you one more time. <clears throat> The District of Columbia consumes 50% more alcohol than the rest of the nation. Those guys are drunk all the time, and they're running our nation. Everyone around them, 50% more. Our nation's already in the sauce too much. 
and DCs run by a bunch of lushes. It's no wonder it's a chaotic mess. If you, can, if you can't drive a vehicle and be under the influence, you definitely should not be in charge of our nation. Making our decisions. Here, Balaam is introduced. He hears clearly from the Lord. He speaks clearly on behalf of God, but he is completely ungodly. You're going to get through these chapters seeing the conduct of Balaam and the point that is missed that you don't get to until you get to Numbers 31. Okay, You go all the way to 25 and sort of the chapters are closed on Balaam. And we don't hear a thing about what is contained in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, where Moses says, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of Israel. From that we learn that Balaam ends up instructing this king right here, Balak, okay, I can't speak against the nation of Israel because I hear accurately from God, and I speak accurately on behalf of God. But if you want to destroy these people, what you do is you get the girls from the Midianites who will prostitute themselves to the men of Israel to go down with their idols in their hands and food as an offering and say, okay, uh, we can have intercourse, but I'm going to put this idol right here, and you're going to eat this food, and that will be an act of idolatry as we are intimate with one another. And the nation of Israel does it. The men fall to sexual sin and thereby also idolatry, which destroys their relationship with God. And then Balak doesn't have to do a blessed thing. Now, the children of Israel has set themselves as an enemy of God and then God has to deal with them harshly and the curse destroys them and exactly what Balak wants to have happen ends up happening. If you're saying, oh, man, he told us the punchline before he even told us the joke. Well, yeah, but if you read through Balaam, you can be left going like, how am I supposed to take this guy? Like, like you know, why does God say certain things to him? Why does he behave certain ways? Why is God telling him to do things and then turning around and being mad at him for doing those things? Because all along the way, Balaam is ungodly. His intentions, his motivations, totally impure. More than anything, you know, he's in the, I'll put the quote brackets around, ministry. He's in the ministry for the money. That's what he's there for. When you can identify that, run away. Run away. You're going through the television channels and there he is. And you can just see money. Never mind, moving on. Look for the minister who just wants to give you the gospel. Who just wants to preach to you God's word. Don't, don't, don't be concerned. right? Oh man, he was prophesying and it came true. Who cares? Who cares? Balaam's going to prophesy. And it's going to be perfectly accurate. And yet this dude is the biggest creep you can imagine. So as we move forward, you need to know that beforehand. All right, so here we are. We've just had 
Balaam introduced, oh, by the way, did I mention that his name actually contains in its original form the name Baal? Okay, he comes from a heritage of idolatrous worship. Even his name bears spiritual significance. So Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people to call him saying, look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are setting uh, settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So here, Balak, the ungodly king, doesn't have an accurate understanding of Balaam. All he knows is that what Balaam says comes true, right? If Balaam curses somebody, they end up being cursed. If Balaam blesses somebody, they end up being blessed. What he doesn't know is Balaam actually inquires of God, and God gives him the information. So the the blessing or the cursing is actually from God. Balak has the perception that if you come over here and do your little seance thing, then whatever you say is going to come true. So what I want from you is a curse. I'm going to pay a big sum of money. You come over here, pronounce the curse upon Israel. I need them to be a cursed people. They're not a cursed people. They're not cursed by God. Balaam could show up here and say curses upon Israel and nothing's going to happen. When we moved into this town, I was told this church will not be a success by a local Christian because uh, the church of Wicca is here and the, church, the, the witches from the church of Wicca go around and they pronounce curses on all the churches in our communities. And I just laughed, literally, as he's telling me. I, and then I realized that offended him. I, oh, you're serious. <clears throat> and he's like, yeah. The scripture says that a curse without founding will not stand. We're children of God. We're doing the work of our Lord. You come here and pronounce a curse against this building, that might just ricochet off and catch you. God, right, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You don't want to be scared of the boogeymen that people want us to get all frightened about here. So the elders of Moab, the elders of Midian departed, verse 7, with the diviner's fee in their hand. So there was a basic understanding of his fees and his cost. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and we'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed at Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Like God doesn't know. This, this is the Lord inviting confession from him so Balaam said to God Balak the son of Zippor king of Moab has sent to me saying look a people has come out of Egypt they cover the face of the earth come now curse them for me perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out God said to Balaam you shall not go with them you shall not curse the people for they are blessed and really that's where you should shut the book 
right? If you're Balaam, that's where you close the discussion and you go back and say, sorry, guys, I've heard from the Lord. It can't be done. End of discussion. No matter how often they came back. Remember, right? <clears throat> My children, I, I, I'm a difficult person sometimes. <clears throat> I, uh, <clears throat> you know how kids will persistently ask something? Over and over, you know, dad, can we? And you say no. And as they get older, you say no. And they'll like reword it. Well, what if, and now they'll give you like another whole angle on it. And um, they learned that I would not, it, to me, it was exhausting to stand there and go through the process like eight times where, where you go, listen to the whole thing all over again and go, no, you know. And go through it all again and go, no, you know. So I would be listening and, you know, I've already said no once and they get to the end of their second round and I just hold up two fingers. And they're like, what? And they start like, well, what if, and oh, I put my hand down and I wait and they get all done and I hold up three fingers. <clears throat> what? And, you know, they go through the whole process again, hold up four fingers. You've asked me four times now, <laughs> and the answer is the same. It's just no. I've said no. There's, there's a circumstance in it, you know, a person that you're going to be around that I don't want you to be with, and so no matter how you ask the question, the answer is going to be no. So here's, oh, okay, five, you know. And when they got a little older, they really started realizing, like, if I'm doing that, we're not budgeting. We're not moving. The answer is no. Balaam doesn't get that. God just said, don't go. So Balaam's going to ask again. Why? Because Balaam wants the money. His motivation is pure evil. And so here the Lord has said, no, you can't go. So Balaam rose early in the morning, said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Princes of Moab <coughs> rose, went back to Balak, said Balaam refuses to come with us, which isn't entirely true. <laughs> Balaam wants to go, but the Lord has said no. So this ungodly pressure begins to mount. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than he. You know, send the big wigs. We just sent the undersecretaries. Now we're going to actually send the ambassadors. We're going to send the princes those that don't just represent, you know, powers and authorities, the real powers and authorities are going to show up. <clears throat> they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold i could not go beyond the word of the lord my god to do less or more and if if you go through this reading and you're thinking like this balaam dude is actually a man of you know strong morals he's not he absolutely is not he's not a man of conviction at all more than anything what he understands is the power of god and he's, he's concerned about that, how it might affect him. 
But he's, he's anxious for the gold and the money. In his saying this, he might actually be saying, um, I'm really looking for a house full of silver and gold. When, when you get to the punchline of who this guy is, you know, he might be saying, you know, if I, if I had like I, I, 10 times the amount of money that you offered me the first time. And that's really where he's driving at. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. You can almost see like number two at this point, right? <laughs> no, is the answer. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come and call to you, arise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Do not mistake that statement as contradicting everything that I've just painted for you. God's answer is still no. Okay? And you're going to see exactly what I mean here. God is going to throw the interference at this man. And he's going to press right through it because he wants the paycheck. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, right? Now are you beginning to see what I'm saying? And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back on the road. Sometimes animals are smarter than us. They've got a fear and a natural sense of, I'm not getting involved in that. And we charge headfirst straight into it. It's interesting how stupid we are. <clears throat> so, it says, and God said, uh, I'm sorry, donkey saw, thank you, 25, when the donkey saw, the angel of the Lord stood in the road, um, was, okay, so he drove, verse 23, right, he drove the donkey back to the road, 24, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards <coughs> with a wall on this side and a wall on that side, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. Well, there is a sword handy. It just happens to be in the hand of an angel. And it's not aimed at the donkey. It's aimed at Balaam. Because the Lord has spoken clearly once, and Balaam has insisted that we ignore what was said and we do our own will. Now, now that spiritual picture should be clear for every one of us. I, I'll do it this way. The Lord has spoken once. Read here, real plain. 
And if you've read it and seen it right here, but you're like, in my case, I think I'll go out around that. I think I'll go way down here in this field and hook around like the donkey's trying to do. You're not going to escape it, right? I'm not going to ask for an embarrassing show of hands, right? But there are many of us in this room who have been steered off course by the Lord, who have had our limbs crushed because we ignored the word of the Lord, where we've had things collapse underneath us like this donkey because we have disobeyed the Lord. The answer, go back to what he first said. Go back to what he first said, which is no. Why are we so dumb? Right? We refer to dumb donkeys. This donkey is smarter than Balaam and has more spiritual vision than Balaam. Though Balaam can see, right, the word of the Lord and even tell people what is said, he's blind to his spiritual environment. That's tragic. That's tragic. So, you know, how is it that he doesn't just freak out when the donkey starts speaking? You know what I'm saying? I mean, just that's where you sprint home. You know what I'm saying? And the donkey said, blah, you know, and just run away. Doesn't make any sense. <sighs> so the donkey said to Balaam, verse 30, am I not your donkey? On which you have ridden ever since I became yours. I haven't belonged to anybody else. It's been you and me since the time you got me to this day. Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. You got to know you're out of your mind when you're conversing with a donkey. And the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also have killed you by now and let her live. The donkey's not the guilty one here. The circumstances in your life that you're freaking out on are not actually the problem. You're the problem. You are the problem. I would have <coughs> you know, left her alive. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. That's not actually how you sinned, Balaam. You sinned by not accepting the word of the Lord. And it's led you to this point where all of these things are going on. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And we'll get through the rest of this as quick as I can. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon boundary of the territory then Balak said to Balaam did I not earnestly send you calling for you why did you not come to me am I not able to honor you I can't pay what you think I couldn't pay you is what he's saying so Balaam said to Balak look I've come to you 
Now I have only power at all to say anything. Uh, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. I, I wonder how this greeting would have gone if Balaam had not had the encounter with the angel. Would Balaam have arrived here in this moment and said, whatever you want, man, that's what I'll do. As much as he's making it sound like I speak accurately for the Lord, he's in it for the money. And he's going to corrupt the nation of Israel, as I read to you when we started this, by the time we're all done. This man is not trustworthy at all. I, I think the injurious experiences and the frightful appearance of the angel are the only thing that is keeping him on track at this moment. I, I don't know that, but, but that's my suspicion. And now, what he's saying is, I, I can only speak what God has told me to. So Baal, excuse me, Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirjath Huzath. Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. That those are centers of worship. Okay, they are elevated positions, but these are places where Baal is worshipped. That from there they might observe the extent of the people, that is, of Israel. So we'll move forward into the remaining chapters, but I just I want to remind you that Balaam shows us that there are very confusing people that are inside Christianity and influence Christianity. So much so, go home, one chapter, please go home and read the one chapter of Jude. As Jude warns the church about false teachers. And he describes there are actually only three, according to Jude, different forms of false teachers. So now, if you learn that, you can learn how to look for them. First one, they go in the way of Cain, right? God said, I want you to worship me this way. Cain said, no, I'll go my own way, right? Then you have those that go in the error of Balaam, who do ministry for profit, okay? So they're in the ministry for money. And then you have those who were engaged in the rebellion of Korah, which we just recently read about. Those within the church that recognize the, the uh, ordained, anointed leadership of the church, and they rebel against it. They're trying to set themselves up in positions of authority. Here, we're dealing with Balaam. Balaam is in the ministry for money. And he can be steered wildly off course by that motivation of his heart. In this case, we're going to see that he prophesies correctly. But, as I just read to you, he then behind the scenes is giving counsel that undermines the entire nation of Israel and destroys them in the process. Think about that again the minister who's in it for the money, but his private counsel causes a deterioration within the church that destroys the church. There are people like that all through the body of Christ. What we need to look for is 
is the person who's counseling me godly in their own life? Are they a person who has a relationship with the Lord and is sincere in what they're doing? So consider the example. We'll pick up at 23 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray? Father, I thank you very much for your love and your grace in our lives. I pray that you would continue to minister to us. Help us to be people that are surrendered to you, not like Balaam, who are only following you in word, but in the heart there is a rebellion. Help us to be consistent, non-hypocritical, real, sincere Christians. Fill us with your spirit. Show us the things you want us doing in this week. Who to speak to, who to pray for, who to evangelize. Lord, we want to build your kingdom. We want to be about your work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.